Hi, and welcome to another episode of the DD Geopolitics podcast. I am Sarah, and I'm joined by my awesome co-host, JM. Hi, JM. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Thanks. And we are joined by the lovely author, Diana Johnstone. I'm Diana Johnstone as an author of one of my absolute favorite books, and definitely my favorite book about Yugoslavia, uh, Fool's Crusade, uh, Yugoslavia, NATO, and Western Delusions. And she's also an essayist and um, journalist that writes for Consortium News, as well as other publications. Hi, Diana. How are you today? Welcome. Hello. Hello. I'm fine. Thank you. Um, today, we're going to be talking about drawing parallels between Yugoslavia and uh, current events today. Um, so uh, I really highly, 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 highly recommend her book. I've posted about it numerous times on all of our platforms. Um, so get it. And if you want, you can read it along with this episode. It'll really help you kind of understand what we're talking about. So the first thing that I'd like to touch on um, is the misuse of the word genocide. Um, I'm starting off with the heavy topics first, I guess. But um, so we, we've seen throughout, it happened during Yugoslavia. You talk about it in your book. I believe the quote is, the illusion of knowing is cre creates an illusion of responsibility. And once the accusation of genocide is widely accepted, it becomes a matter of honor not to, not to listen to the other side. So um, how, do you how do we recover this word? So we know that this past spring, the United Nations, they found no evidence of, of genocide in Ukraine. I mean, they injured, made sure to add the word yet, just in case it ever happens in the future. But uh, their quote was, we have, not we have not found that there has been a genocide within Ukraine. So we still see on social media and even in some uh, mainstream media, the use of the word, how do we recover this word so it, it retains its meaning? <clears throat> well, personally, I would rather not retain this word because I think this word uh, has become above all an instrument of, of justifying conflicts. Uh, rather than it, rather than a description of anything, it's become the excuse for intervening in in foreign wars uh, that began in Yugoslavia, like so much. Because I want to point out, Yugoslavia was was sort of an experimental laboratory for breaking up Russia, um, and uh, one of the aspects of the Yugoslav War, which was a, an explosion of dishonest reporting about things, is this use of the word genocide. And uh, of course, it was used then, we must, we must bomb Serbia in order to prevent a genocide. There was no genocide to be prevented. And then that was used again in, in Libya to destroy Libya because we had to prevent a genocide. So actually the use of genocide has is, is, is become particularly involved in imaginary genocides that the United States military must prevent by ruining a country. And frankly, at this point, I don't see much use in that term. I mean, killing people is killing people. There's massacres and so on. They've been going on all through history. The word genocide is fairly recent. History got went along without it for thousands of years, and I think we could still go without it because I see that word uh, as more utilitarian in a negative way than positive. And even along these lines of the misuse of terms and, and kind of like their utilization for propaganda, we have a new Hitler on our hands like um, we we tend to do. So Milosevic was the Hitler of the 90s. And then I think Saddam Hussein was a was another Hitler that we had. I think uh, Gaddafi might have been Hitler. And now we have Putin <laughs> and kind of all of these, this sort of, you call it black propaganda, which is the correct term for the word but now we tend to use the term false flags um so and then you during yugoslavia there was uh you know each attack each of these false flags if you will each attack would be um kind of in sync like synchronous with uh something some major event 
that was going on or at a critical moment, at a critical turning point. And we've also kind of seen that in Ukraine. So um, most recently, uh, JM might have to help me out, but we, but remembering the, the, uh, the strike on Kramatorsk, the train station, and then most more recently was the strike in uh, Donetsk, which was firstly blamed very heavily on Russia, and then later on found out that it was actually a Ukrainian missile, and then kind of trying to drag Poland into the war by claiming that piece of artillery was Russian, um, and then I, Bucha, which still kind of troubles me to this day. Um, I know you talked about it in one uh, podcast that I listened to, which was excellent. It was on the podcast. I think it's called Pay Attention. But um, you guys touched on Bucha a little bit. But um, do you see any, this might be a little hot button issue, but do you see any parallels between Srebrenica and Bucha or anything else that has, has occurred in Ukraine? Well, I, 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 I don't, I'm not so sure that, I see uh, what I see is that you have Western media that uh, will whatever happens when every time there's a massacre of any sort, there's a bomb and people are killed. The Ukrainian will come out and say that Putin did this because he loves to kill people. He's a monster. He does it for the fun of killing. And the Western media will will take it up and believe it. And and so that's the parallel. The parallel is uh, in Yugoslavia. The Western media was ready to believe that uh, when there was a bomb in a marketplace, uh, and they the anti-Serbs said that the Serbs did it. Well, the media was there to say, oh, it's terrible. The Serbs did this, of course. I mean, you you have the combination of a media which is totally obedient to the war aims of NATO, and and then the the whoever our allies are will just accuse the other side of of, of well of genocide and everything, and the media will pick it up. And this I don't need to call it false flag or anything. It's just the regular practice of the obedient Western media and uh, and 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 whatever uh, country our whatever our client state is saying. Um, and of course, the Hitler business is just unfortunately, there's a fascination for the last seventy five years with the period of of uh, nineteen thirty three to nineteen forty five when you had Hitler. And I think I, I'm afraid that uh, very many people in the West, and especially the United States, the only thing they know about world history or think they know about it is is the Hitler period. And so whenever there's a bad guy, it's Hitler again, because that's the only one they know about. And they're not going to say it's Caligula. They're going to say it's Hitler. And <laughs> I don't know that anybody would get that reference these days. <laughs> they would say no, I mean, frankly, there is an abysmal ignorance of history uh, that is at loose right now in the world. And that makes it possible to just recount everything by analogy with the Hitler period. And where there's, oh, well, there's one, this horrible monster, and then he wants to kill people and blah, blah, blah. And there's it, actually that history is not recounted accurately. Uh, but it, it's the analogy for everything that happens. And so it's we're doing it all over again, and th this this th this degree of ignorance makes it possible to live in a world of lies. Yeah, I think that is a good segue into another issue that we uh, were both taken in by when reading your book, which is um, this idea of a Germany resurgent, reasserting itself as a great power through different means and saying that in doing so, it must do so through uh, atoning through its past. But you suggest that actually it isn't really that simple. And actually there is something, there's a bit more of a darker substrate beneath uh, the beautiful words. Could you describe for our listeners kind of that idea, that conceit that you identified? Well, I think, I think the Germans now are, are quite divided. 
but you can't know it because the media is not divided. <laughs> the media and the government are <clears throat> in harmony completely uh, in this Ukrainian business. Um, but uh, what I noticed, you see, I, I, was, I spent a lot of time in Germany and I, I was especially in Germany in the 1980s when there was a big popular movement against the stationing of nuclear missiles in Germany. And it was sort of a peace movement and it's all the beginning of the Green Party. And it, it was very strong and, and it led up to reunification. Now, I was around Germans a lot also because I spent a time as a press officer in the European Parliament and I was observing these things very closely. And I was rather astonished, you see, um, in, in about 19, in the late 1990s, that these Germans, particularly the Social Democrats, the left-wing people who had been so much for peace and so much against, we must get rid of the enemy images, uh, the enemy stereotypes of our opponents in the over in the past wars and they were all for for you know being seeing people as friends and so on and i was quite astonished to see how this suddenly evaporated when serbia was the enemy well now you see serbia is considered uh the enemy from world war one and uh all of a sudden when serbia started being labeled as the new Hitler, the new horrible, whatever it was, I was surprised that all of these, that these lately peaceful Germans were suddenly uh, adopting the, the old stereotype against the Serbs. And of course, now with the Russians, it's, it's the same thing, but much, much, much worse. And, um, and somehow, it's persuaded me that aside from all of the various economic and this kind of geostrategic interests one can talk about, that there is something psychological that has affected quite a few Germans that they have been blamed for decades for being so evil that to find themselves now on the good side with the Americans against the Russians gives them a kind of satisfaction, a kind of nasty satisfaction, I must say. And, uh, um, and, and Germans are historically a rather moralistic people. You see that from the Re Reformation and so on. I mean, even if when they're Nazis, they're being moralistic. Um, they thought they were, you know, being good, doing the right thing. And uh, I would compare that I find that Italians and and especially French are more rational uh, in their in their politics, but the, there there is this this satisfaction of being on the on the on the good side with the uh, power of the Americans and this of redoing the end of of uh, World War Two, which actually there were some people in the West who wanted to do it at the time, but they didn't. I mean, to switch switch sides and go against the Soviet Union. And th this is a psychological factor that can help explain why the German policy is actually very damaging to German, German interests. It's devastating to their economy. Uh, and yet a lot of people are going along with it for the moral satisfaction it gives them. But of course, on the other hand, there are a lot of people who don't like it at all, but they are being pretty much silenced at the moment. I think another good thing that you bring up is this idea of self-determination among peoples, which just sounds all very lovely. You know, United Nations Charter, the 14 points, Wilsonian principles, aren't the Germans embracing our way of doing things and our way of thinking things, showing that they've moved on beyond their past. But you suggest in your book um, that actually this is quite a traditional um, German great power politics weapon in Eastern Europe? Well, yes. I mean, it, it was something that, that they developed because they had, uh, they, they were exploiting uh, minorities uh, 
in order to 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 dominate uh, the regions because they were the most powerful uh, 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 power there. And um, so, of course, when you say, you know, you're always talking about values and so on. Well, territorial integrity is a value, which is opposite of self-determination. And you get a clash between those values. And of course, which side you take and which value you, you promote will depend on what your interests are in that particular case. Uh, that's the way it, it, it works. And um, uh, you, you see that powers are, are for territorial integrity when they're in favor of that country and therefore self-determination when they want to tear it apart. Uh, and unfortunately, um, you, you, you have to be very specific about these things. And of course, uh, you, you know, you, you, you can't just go all out for, for one of these things, uh, ignoring the other. Hmm. Uh, you've also touched on the idea repeatedly in your writings about this idea of NATO expansion and safety. But you've also, I think, questioned quite articulately if it really does make uh, people safer. Um, and also some of the motives for NATO expansion. Could you expound upon those for our listeners? Oh, yes. Well, you know, the fact is that uh, many of these countries that were we've expanded, uh, the population was not in favor of it. And, and not so long ago, the Ukrainians were majority not in favor of it. And we say, oh, they have the right to join NATO. Well, you're talking about the leaders of the country have the right to the privileges that they hope to get from joining NATO. Um, but uh, many of these Eastern European countries, I think, in polls, they did not really want to join NATO. They wanted to join the EU because they thought that that would give them a lot of wealth and prosperity. Uh, and it was sort of joining NATO was a ticket to the EU, and it, it was so partly on that way. As if you're in, if you're in NATO, you'll get in the EU, uh, and a lot of people in the East wanted to be in the EU for economic hopes, uh, because the EU gives a lot of money to these new members. Um, but uh, NATO, on the other hand, is only going to make them poorer because. Joining NATO means you've got to buy a lot of U.S. weapons, or or they keep nagging you to do that, and uh, you so you get your defense budget becomes a defense of NATO. You have to buy the weapons that the U.S. is selling you, which may be used in Afghanistan or someplace, but not for your own national defense because the, these then you become part of the the, the NATO international war machine which is what it's been ever since the Kosovo War. It's been an international machine for going into other countries, not for defending, not for defending its members, but for uh, aggression against other countries. And that's what it, what it really means. And uh, of course, the, the leaders of countries can hope that they get in and because they'll get benefits from, from uh, being part of the club. But, uh, but it has really very little to do with uh, self defense. I mean, it has nothing to do, in fact, with self defense because then they become, in fact, their defense depends on the United States <laughs> because it's the United States that finally decides everything. And uh, the, it, there's, there's, the, the only benefit is a psychological benefit of, oh, we belong to the West, which is sort of a mystique. But it, there's no practical advantage whatsoever. And so this is something that I've also been thinking about lately with this idea of NATO, because sometimes like we, NATO not only instigates wars, but they also like you kind of touched on, they use wars to uh, create a, 
a, a precedent for more expansion like they did with Yugoslavia. I mean, the board balkanization exists for a reason. And um, immediately following, I think it was uh, 1999 is when they created all the maps for all the prior Yugoslavian states and even um, up into the Baltics. And then this time, this conflict, we're already seeing them definitely shy away from even going with the idea of Ukrainian NATO membership. <laughs> but they, like you said, they they disarmed like half of Europe and then were trying to push for Finland, Sweden um, <laughs> NATO membership so they could be dependent on the United States. And then Finland immediately started building a wall. So it's like, does... So the entrance in the, into NATO made actually made you less safe. Like it made your border, what what you perceive your, as your border with Russia, less safe. It's just a really weird. It's a really weird like chain of thought. If it like, I, I, if you, do you know what I'm talking about? Like we're sending our weapons. We're 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 totally behind the EU when it comes to Ukraine, even though the EU is not necessarily a military uh, block. And then they're like, well, now you don't have any weapons, so you're going to have to join NATO. Like, it's kind of like this, like, bait and switch sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, you know, it's it actually, it's very simply, NATO is simply the way that the United States uh, exercises total military control and with it foreign policy control over uh, European nations. It's as simple as that. It, it's it's a Europe. It's the United States. The United States conquered uh, Europe thanks to the Soviet Union, if I may say so, because it was the it was the Soviet Union that militarily defeated <clears throat> Nazi Germany. But the United States came in late uh, in the right place and uh, managed to. Uh, occupy a big piece, which it's kept ever since. The Soviet Union gave up its its occupied uh, countries. The United States still occupies them. Germany has been an occupied nation, militarily occupied, and I would say politically occupied ever since 1945. Italy is occupied militarily. Belgium is occupied. The Netherlands is occupied. Um, and so, but the NATO membership is also a way to keep American control of, I say, not only their military, but, it, but their foreign policy as well. And it's, it's simply an expansion of, of the uh, United States empire. I'm sorry, but that's what it is. It's, it's quite obvious. In your book, this, this kind of leads into this idea of EU nationalism as well. And um, in, in the Fool's Crusade, you talk about this new sort of nationalism, which is the exaltation of EU membership over national sovereignty expressed in terms of self-glorification as anti-nationalists devoted to human rights and suitable to join the big club, the big club we always talk about. Um, we see now we're seeing some nations really try to assert themselves through political maneuvering, um, especially states like Hungary, who has con consistently been the target of, of uh, Western media, um, Poland most recently in their election cycle, and Slovakia, surprisingly, that election did not go the way the West wanted it to go. Um, do you think that Ukraine and even Georgia so what I'm trying to say is those those aforementioned states are now asserting their national identities very, very strongly separate from the EU, um, while other countries, maybe like Italy, have to succumb, have to kind of deny their own uh, national, nationalism to succumb to the EU, while these other three are, are doing the opposite. Do you think that Ukraine and maybe even Georgia have in the already or will succumb to this EU nationalism because we know that nationalism in Ukraine is very strong and it's a, it's a topic of contention especially in this conflict but it, the argument is that you kind of need to forego that state specific nationalism to and to embrace this kind of EU nationalism and sort of like these these nationalistic movements, um, I see them as a natural reaction to an economic downturn. 
And now that Germany, so this is kind of, I guess this is kind of a two-parter question. So now that Germany and France have been knocked down quite a few pegs, who will be left to uphold the EU nationalism? Well, that's a pretty complicated uh, subject. And you, you see, I, I, I don't really, I, I think this EU nationalism is totally artificial. Um, it, it's, 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 an, it's an idea. It's, um, I mean, I'm living in France, and of course, my point of view is very much influenced by, by, by being in France, and I've spent a lot of time in Germany and Italy as well. But um, you, you see, the, the, the beginning of, of, EU, of, Europe, of the European idea was peace. And that is pretty much, I mean, they still, you know, we'll make peace between Germany and France with Europe, and then it will be peaceful and prosperous. Well, this peaceful business just means between Germany and France, but then they go make war against Yugoslavia, then they go make war against other countries. So uh, it, 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 that's where European nationalism comes in because it becomes nationalist in the worst way, that is to say in an aggressive war way, but there is no sense of uh, of solidarity between Europeans, and there's less and less because I mean I think since the European Union there is less awareness of what's happening in neighboring countries than there used to be, um, because uh, the, the the EU is really an economic mechanism to prevent social policies. It it it, it was sold to people as a making peace in Europe. It's not doing that. It's doing the opposite. And the reality of it's become uh, the policies that are now being foisted on member states are, 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 uh, are neoliberal policies that are reducing, that are reducing their social measures. This is clear in France. I mean, very much so. The, 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 the laws that are decided in Brussels and foisted on the member states are weakening the strong social state in, the, in, in France. The, the health system is suffering. The education system is suffering. Um, everything is suffering. And uh, from, because it started with the Maastricht Treaty, uh, which in fact, rule made rule made economic policy part of the system. I mean, you, we have a constitution in the United States. It, it, you can say what you want about it, we'll go to bed, but it doesn't spell out an economic system. The U.S. the the, the, the what amounts to the constitution here and the rules here do they they not only rule out socialism, they rule out Keynesian. Keynesianism. They were, they, uh, the, the, the great principle is, is competition. And competition means, for instance, in France, France has always been a country where the government kind of led the economy and, and it did very well with government leadership. But now, it, under the uh, competition myth, religion, I would say, the government can't help its industry because it would be against competition. So that the Americans, for instance, can come in and buy out uh, the most critical industry in France and then dismantle it, perhaps, or take it home or something. And the French, and the French can't do anything about it because, uh, because this is competition. And it's not just competition between members that is sacred, but competition with the whole world. And um, so the, there, there is no real national interest that is allowed to survive. And this is justified ideologically by the notion that, that if you're concerned about your own country, my God, you're a nationalist. 
And if you're a nationalist, that means you want to be horrible to everybody else, uh, which is an assumption that has not been proven. And, and, and so you have the ideology that if you are for the whole world, you're generous and kind and lovable, whereas if you're concerned about the welfare of your own people, there's something bad about you. And that, that ideology has really been um, established in Europe so that people don't dare criticize Europe because they think it's inherently good and nationalism is inherently bad without examining the details. Now, why do you think um, the uh, French um, political elite uh, surrendered that a lot of that sense of national sovereignty and state interventionism, so that sort of um, uh, post-war Gaulism that they were so uh, proud of, uh, why did they uh, tie their hands so willingly? And, um, well, why did uh, does uh, someone like Emmanuel Macron see it as his mission to um, enforce a major pension reform, even by decree, rather than by consensus? Well, Macron, in that particular case, it's because it, it was Europe that, that called for that. He's just carrying out the orders of Europe. It, it, it's, it's as simple as that. It's it, The whole population is against it, and they're against it for a good reason. The fact is that it... it uh, the, you have to be pragmatic about these things. The fact is that especially with uh, deindustrialization and the rise of artificial intelligence, there are fewer and fewer jobs for people uh, in their late years. And the fact is that employers don't want to employ people who are 60 and above. And so what you get if, if you raise the retirement age is you get a lot of unemployed people over 60. And they don't get retirement pensions yet. And, uh, and, and they're in trouble, you see. And so there are very solid reasons for people in this conjuncture to be against this reform. But it was, a, it was laid down by Brussels. And so Macron, he was chosen, he was chosen basically by the financial sector, which runs things now. And um, th that, because that, uh, all of these policies actually lead to breakdown of the social state and the, the rise of privatization of everything. And, and that, that's, that's what's behind it. Now, I, there was a beginning, I was answering Macron, but it was the beginning of your question, which I've forgotten. Oh, yeah. Why did the French political class just turn over all these instruments of um, power? Ah. Why did they surrender Gaulism for whatever this is? Well, uh, yeah, this really, it, the, the, the real surrender came under Mitterrand. And, um, and it was a matter of giving in to, to Europe because he, he, uh, Mitterrand was elected in 81, as I recall. Uh, on, the, on this joint leftist program with, with joint with the Communist Party, for uh, Mitterrand was was elected to have uh, a policy of uh, 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 really similar to what De Gaulle had, to, you know, strong state intervention and 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 so on. And uh, the word came down that the Europe didn't like this. And they surrendered, that's when they surrendered to Europe. And, it, and, and that's when the left changed its tune. And it, it started, it's, that's exactly when the, this, by abandoning the common program, uh, the socialists, well, they, the, the left then turned away from economic policies and its theme became anti-racism. And it, in fact, it turned to identity politics. Uh, and the, and it, then it went around to find bad guys who were racist and to, you know, to fight against racism. Uh, and, and 
but why they gave why they gave up to Europe is partly you know the propaganda for Europe was enormous, and I think the part the funniest part of the propaganda for Europe was was popular precisely in France more than anywhere else. It was. Oh, if we're in Europe, we'll be strong and we can be independent of the United States. That's the joke of the uh, of all time, because in fact, becoming part of the European Union has made Europe totally dependent on the United States. As it, it's had exactly that effect. But they did, they didn't seem to know it, or they, or if they knew it, they didn't say it. And uh, you see, De Gaulle. His, his, he, the Gaulle had a vision of France, uh, uh, which was sort of his, historic. And um, I, I, that, that probably the, again, another paradox is probably the people that most shared his view of France were the communists, but he was anti-communist, of course. So they were political opponents, but, the fall of the goal was also the fall of the communists because they were the, the, real, the, the real people who cared about the welfare of the nation. And other people just li like the, the, this idea of, of, um, of, of being this, we'll, we'll be this big power because we're too small now to really ma matter anymore. So, so we, and the French thought at first that they were gonna be the leading power because Germany was, was being rather timid and shy in its foreign policy at the time the EU European Union, I mean European unity began, and so the France France was the leading political power, and I think they would imagine that the EU was going to be sort of a huge France. Well, it isn't, and of course now Germany is Germany is much more powerful, and besides that, there are all of these. Eastern countries that have nothing to do with French interests whatsoever. And so France is just a little piece of this, but they went in thinking that they'd be more powerful because they would be sort of the, the leading power in this great power, just like the United States, and that would make them more free of the United States. Well, it's just the opposite that has happened. I do want to touch on since we're still on for kind of France and Germany and this middle Europa area. Um, it, your recent article on Consortium News, Germans Down and Russians Out, which is one of my favorite quotes to invoke, especially right now. <laughs> and just to remind our listeners, um, the goal of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization used to be, um, according to its Secretary General, first Secretary General, Lord Ismay. Uh, it was to keep the Russians out, the Americans in, and the Germans down. Do you think that this conflict uh, as, at least signifies the achievement of two of these goals? Are we have we seen the uh, another like beat down of Germany and pushing them into another decades long um, evolution of rebuilding? Um, is this like the penultimate goal of NATO? Honestly. Well, no, I mean, I, I wouldn't put it quite that way. I, I mean, to keep the Germans down really meant at that point to keep them uh, under the thumb of the United States. And, and that's, that has been working for, for 70, over 75 years. I mean, the, Germany is totally dominated. It's, it's dominated by a whole lot of things. I mean, of course, I say it's militarily uh, um, occupied. There are all these institutes of, of young leaders and things like that, where in fact the, the United States manages to select the leadership in German politics and media to a very large extent. And, and then there's uh, the Marshall Plan, generous Marshall Plan, arranged things so that U.S. investment pretty much shapes the German economy. Because uh, right, right now, for instance, Germany is, is sh shifting to be a military, uh, to have a military industrial complex. But it happens to be that BlackRock, 
and other Americans are heavily invested in that. <clears throat> so it, it, the, uh, the profits from, from this uh, uh, German military industrial complex will go to uh, stockholders in BlackRock and so on. And uh, so the, the keeping, the, it certainly is keeping Germany down and keeping the Russians out is the great uh, purpose that was uh, articulated by, uh, by Brzezinski, uh, that the whole purpose of to, to keep American hegemony is to prevent, uh, to prevent cooperative world of cooperation and so on between Russia and, and Germany. And, you know, the original Cold War, in retrospect, it's, it's come clear to me that the whole thing when, when Churchill went and said an iron curtain has come down, of course, it's always been British policy to keep Europe divided. And, Europe, and British policy was greatly influenced on American policy as the United States took over Britain's role as the great imperialist power. And Atchison is her personification of that. He's almost a, you know, <laughs> he looks British. Um, and, and they took over uh, the, the, whole, uh, the whole thing of keeping the, the Cold War. Russia was, the, US, the Soviet Union was never going to invade Western Europe. That's ridiculous. They were suffering from a devastating war. They never had any such intentions. But we made it out that they were a huge threat, and that allowed them to, to uh, rearm Germany as an adjunct of the United States to keep your Russians out of Europe and, and, and to keep the Americans there. And the fact is that these, these, all of this has been working the whole time, and it's still working. And the state of Germany, being down doesn't necessarily mean that I, I know there's an idea that this is deliberately done to destroy the German economy. Well, I wouldn't put it quite that way. The U.S., by controlling investment, has already managed to control the German economy so that it isn't very competitive with the American economy. And that is, will just continue. Um, uh, but um, I don't think they, I, I don't think we're back to the Morgenthau plan. I don't know what you know about the Morgenthau plan, but that was a, a, a notion that was in the United States, the end of World War I, that we should de-industrialize de, uh, Germany and turn it into pasture, which was a terrible idea because the population of Germany would have starved. But, um, and that, that policy was turned around into its contrary, which was the Marshall Plan, which was to, 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 to help German industry get back on its feet, but in a way, in ways that were not competitive with the United States. You, um, about a year ago, you wrote an article titled, The Specter of Germany is Rising. Um, but I wanna revisit that because now I just, that I just asked that question. Um, I don't, I have to disagree, at least now, that the specter of Germany is still rising. And, and I think that we could make a good case for the specter of Poland to uh, rise. So we know that the United States sees, uh, needs a buffer state between itself and Russia. It, it's absolutely necessary. They, they, they need it. Uh, that's, that's just penultimate. And um, it kind of utilized Ukraine in that respect. But with Ukraine being basically decimated and um, rendered almost like useless in this sense, um, we've seen a massive rearmament of Poland. Um, there's been a myriad of articles in 2023 about them buying tanks, jets, more armament. And I think in September, uh, they, it was announced that they would purchase 24 billion in weapons to increase their security. So what does this mean in the grand scheme of things? Is Ukraine no longer going to be the buffer state or is Poland now going to be the United States military leader for the EU? Um, what kind of messages can we pull from this? 
Well, I am not. By the way, I, funny thing is, I don't remember this article of mine, the Spectre of Germany. I, I, don't, I don't remember that. What did I mean? <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't get that. What? What does Spectre in what way? Seven. It was from September twelfth, September twelfth of twenty twenty two, um, and you talked about Germany revanchism, kind of what we've already touched on in here. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's this revengeism I'm talking about, but that that that's different from that's not the same thing uh, because it, it is still it is it is planning to build itself up militarily, and the poles too. So uh, um, all of that. But they haven't done it yet, and it hasn't happened yet. And the, the I mean, the idea is that they're they're using Ukraine. They're they're going to do that to arm Ukraine indefinitely. All of that, I really don't know how that's going to work out. You know, really that. Um, but uh, uh, the of course the, the difficulty. This is one of the difficulties is that the Germans and the Poles. Don't get along that well. Neither have the Ukrainians <laughs> and both, and and so this this great European alliance with our common values is is sort of sh shaky somewhere because because in fact, um, to a large extent, the Poles hate almost all their neighbors except the Lithuanians, and um, the the so. Uh, I, I don't I don't know where where it can go because actually po Polish foreign policy is sort of famous for being overdone. You know, I mean, uh, uh, they're now demanding reparations from Germany, although they took a big piece of Germany after World War II, and Germany doesn't feel it owes them much of anything. And um, uh, the, the, I, I don't know where this will lead. It, it, mean, it means it, that there, there, there's very uncomfortable neighbor neighbors in 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 and uh, and and it's true that the German economy seems to be going down as the polls are going up, but there's probably limits to that. Um, I think they're also fairly intertwined because they're. Uh, th there's German companies in Poland and Polish workers in Germany. Uh, they don't maybe not like each other, but they have a certain dependence. Yeah, I think this is a good place to perhaps uh, turn to Kosovo because and what happened there. Um, I must admit that I. Um, was very grateful to your book for setting out a number of things that you had to read between the lines and other things, such as in Tim Judah's book about Kosovo, to get an idea of what was going on. So um, could you give perhaps our readers a brief overview of um, some points that you think are the main misconceptions about um, the violence that surged up in Kosovo in 1997 and what the conclusion such as it was at the um, uh, end of the summer of 1999 was like? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the you know, that uh, it, it's, the, the problem is, you, you know, the, the Kosovo, the Kosovo situation was a, was a very uncomfortable one. And I, 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 I knew some people Few people, uh, um, I think of Jan Oberg and his his piece uh, uh, foundation, who was trying. And, and by the way, uh, the wife of President Mitterrand. Uh, these are two people I knew who who were sponsoring meetings between various Yugoslavs and Kosovars and and, and Kosovo Kosovo Albanians and Serbs to try to work out solutions. And my impression, I attended some of those meetings. And there were certainly intellectuals uh, who were influential, 
who were, were, were willing and able to work out some kinds of compromise. But this was systematically opposed by the United States and the West, you see. They didn't want a solution. And you've got to see this. You can say that the problem was difficult because uh, it, they were historic problems and so on about Kosovo. But, and to go through all that is very complicated. But there, there were, it, like a lot of problems, if you have a bit of goodwill, you can solve them. But if you have nothing but determination to exploit that in order to cause trouble, well, that works even quicker. And that's really what happened. And you see, the, the, um, the, there were a lot of, you have these historic misunderstandings and problems and so on. But, but what happened is that I think it was really in the beginning of 1998, you, you had the Kosovo Liberation Army, so-called, uh, go into action and start assassinating people in Kosovo. I think they went after the rector of Pristina University and, and they were carrying out classic te terrorist attacks. And initially the State Department called that group terrorist. And, and you see, they were, they were assassinating uh, Serbs, but they were also assassinating Albanians who collaborated, that is to say, down to postmen, you know, people who were, who, who were accepting the, present regime, government. Uh, and of course, there was re repression of that. And then, and this repression was pretty effective, but the United States sent in this um, Kosovo, what do you call it? This uh, monitors, this group of monitors, and somehow or other, uh, this American, William Walker got in charge of it. And th this was supposed to be a peacemaking monitor, monitor group, but he used this incident that occurred in January 1999 in Rachak as, as an incident to start the war. Um, that, that was, that was a, a total false flag if you well not exactly a false flag but it was it was an incident that they could jump on and misrepresent and use as a as a cause for war um the, uh, by the way i you, there, there were, it was this village of rachak where there were people who were killed now the fact is that i i know the the correspondence of Figaro, correspondent of Figaro, um, uh, what is his name? Um, uh, he was a veteran and a conservative, and not not particular. But he he and the and the other correspondents knew that that what was presented as a, a, a massacre of of civilians was a planned and announced operation of the Serbian police. They announced it. They invited people to come, I mean, police, uh, journalists to cover it, that they were retaliating against a village which was made up of these um, assassins who had been killing policemen, uh, something that policemen tend to resent quite considerably. Uh, and. Um, it was a military operation against an identified base of of the of uh, of this Uchaka group, and William Walker went in and put on a show for the media, saying, "Oh, this is the most horrible thing I've ever seen," and he'd seen a lot because he had sponsored killing in in Latin America, in Central America, and, and this was used as as this was incredible. Um, uh, false uh, representation of, of, of events. But as usual, the Western media accepted whatever the Western authorities say. And then he withdrew the, the monitoring group. 
And if the monitoring group had stayed, you'd have known what was going on, but it wasn't there. So since he took it out, the, the press could then re report every kind of imaginary genocide that they that somebody whispered in their ear. And so the the whole bombing was 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 arranged. And um it was arranged and you see why, because the moment it, it went on from March to June, and the moment that the Serbs allowed the Americans to go into Africa, Kosovo, what did they start doing? Building a huge military base of for the United States. They, that's what they wanted to do all the time. They all, were, the whole point was to get NATO in there so that the US could build a, another military base, which is a huge military base. And now Kosovo is mainly, sort of their main industry is this US military base. And, 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 and that's, in a sense, that's, uh, but that's, that's one thing, purpose of the war. The other purpose of the war, of course, was to, to give NATO its new mission. That, that's the main point. The main point was to save NATO from uh, obsolescence because the Warsaw Pact had quit. There was no Soviet Union. There was no Soviet threat, nothing. But you had to keep NATO going in order to keep the U.S. in. <laughs> Uh, Germany down and the Russians out. You had to keep NATO going. So, uh, with the pretext of 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 what of this false massacre, you had to. You suddenly had a threat of a genocide. So suddenly NATO has a new mission. It's no longer a defensive alliance. It's one that will save people from genocide. And that's how they saved. They saved. They used Kosovo to save NATO so it could go on for future wars. That's what it was all about, period. I want to touch on, with while we're talking about Kosovo and Serbia, maybe bringing it closer to the um, right now, uh, when the recent events happened in Armenia, Artsakh, and Azerbaijan, um, a lot of my Serbian friends were incredibly uh, fearful, which I think Serbs a lot of times are just very fearful in general for good reason. But they said, they were like, if they did that to Artsakh, they're coming for Kosovo next. And um, they kind of did. There, We did see a little bit of escalatory actions in Kosovo recently. Um, kind of a mass confusion. I'm still not really certain what actually happened but um, do you think that they're coming that, well, I guess they'll always be coming for Kosovo and Serbia, but how do these things become interrelated? Like, I think that the Serbs saw them being able to run through Artsakh so quickly as a direct threat because Armenia is, is, is um, historically a Russian ally. So do you think that these escalatory actions in Kosovo will, will continue to increase as stuff as stuff happens around the globe? Look, I, 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 don't, I don't go in for predictions, but you see, I think there's a big difference. I, I have heard, I, I don't know much about Armenia. I don't know anything about Armenia. I mean, I've, I've been in Kosovo, I've been in Serbia. These are places that I've spent a lot of time. Uh, uh, Armenia is, is terra incognita for me. However, I have heard that the present president of Armenia whose name I can't recall uh, offhand. Um, Nikolai aspires, Yeah, aspires to 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 join the West, and so he's letting he let Karabakh uh, go because he couldn't get into he couldn't get in while there's a conflict there, and but of course the problem is if you look at the at the geography there. Uh, it's very complicated because not only was there this piece of this Armenian land, Nagorno-Karabakh, that was surrounded by Azerbaijan, but then there's a piece of Azerbaijan that's that's separated from Azerbaijan by Armenia, and so there's possibility of more war there. Uh, uh, and this is this is a 
age-old conflict, uh, and I, I, I find it difficult to comparison to compare to anything. But of course, it 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 is part of the geopolitical struggle going on. In in so much as Armenia has been traditionally uh, protected by Russia, you might say, uh, and Russia apparently this the current president was not very friendly with Russia and has sort of broken that off. A lot of people in Armenia are not happy about that. I can't tell because it's very complicated and I don't easily compare it. The Kosovo situation is different because Kosovo, I, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the interest now of the West is to put pressure on Serbia. Uh, Kosovo doesn't matter very much. I mean, it, it's a U.S. military base, but other than that, it's, they, they can keep Serbia on edge because by various little tweaks and measures here and there. Uh, and But the, the idea is, of course, Serbia is a holdout in not being against Russia. But at least Serbia ha has the advantage now that its neighbor, Hungary, is not so keen on this uh, Ukrainian adventure either. Well, that's lucky. So, uh, I mean, Serbia is surrounded by hostile NATO countries, but at least Hungary gives no sign of wanting to make war against Serbia. And that's very important because there are quite a bit there are Hungarians living in Serbia and vice versa. I mean, you know, if you wanted to stir up trouble between those two, there's possibilities there, but there, but but it's not working to have trouble there. So I I don't know because uh, uh, I I don't think much Europeans care care very much about Kosovo. Kosovo is a totally American. I mean, they've got statues of American presidents there. It's totally, it's a totally American colony. It's, it's, it's not the Europeans. The Europeans have the problem of a whole lot of Kosovars and many of them inv involved in, in uh, criminal activities coming into their countries. So, so I, I don't think that there's much love for, for, for Kosovo. Of course, there is love for, for Armenia in France or California because there are a lot of this big Armenian diaspora. Um, so I, I, there, there, the cases, I see huge differences bet between them. Um, and I'm not too sure where a comparison goes. But I, 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 I think, um, I, I think that that there's wanting to harass the Serbs and get this somehow or other get the Serbs onto uh, the, the Europeans. Some Europeans want to extend. I mean, like Ursula von der Leyen, she wants to extend uh, uh, Europe, the EU, even you know, into Western Balkans. I think some countries don't want to do that. I think the French feel there's too many in there already, uh, and it's getting completely out of hand. But um, but I, I I really don't know exactly who is doing what um, there in Kosovo. There's also the problem of Bosnia, which is you know being being is run by by uh, European. Uh, Directors, etc., has no independence whatsoever. Uh, th there's potential problems there because Republika Srpska has good relations with Russia. I, I don't know. They're, they, they're, the situation is inherently unstable, and one can push it in this direction and there the other. But maybe the local people aren't really ready to fight. Mm. And I think for, um, as I close out, where do you see uh, the current trajectory of uh, NATO? What comes next for the alliance? 
I I make a point of not making predictions. <laughs> I, I I try I try very hard to understand the past and the present, and the future is always full of surprises. I don't know. Um, I they they seem to have the problem is they seem to have no plan B. Uh, they seem to be launched into this. Uh, if you hear Annalena Baerbach, uh, um, it's interesting. By the way, I think she took down. I think she took down the portrait of of Bismarck from the Foreign Ministry. Uh, <laughs> it's a symbolic of uh, this little girl who takes down the symbol of of geopolitical wisdom. Takes <laughs> removes it from the Foreign Office of Germany. Um, Let's let's just be straight out simple minded, and that's what you what it is. And they're going to stay with Ukraine until the victory is. Well, when they don't get that victory, what are they going to do? I I I I don't know. I I mean, uh, they 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 act like they're going to go on and 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 defeat Russia, but. There seem to be doubts about this in the United States, and right now the doubts in the United States seem to be a bit more promising than than in Europe. Uh, I, I think there are plenty of doubts in France, but Macron is going along with it. Um, there's just there's just a, a, a lack of intelligent leadership, a lack of wisdom in the political class that is stunning. Well, I think on that very, very cheery note, we can perhaps <laughs> close out this episode. Um, Ms. Johnston, where can our listeners find you if they want to hear more from you? Well, it, it's difficult because you, um, I, I to mention my age, which is quite advanced, more so than it says in the Wikipedia, by the way. <laughs> and uh, uh, they've got it three years wrong. <laughs> um, and I don't have the energy to do very much in the way of writing. Um, I would like to, of course, but I, I don't have the I don't have the energy. So uh, if I have anything to say in writing and consortium news is where I would want to be because I have great respect for the work that Joe Laurie is doing with that publication. I think, I think it's very important and honest. I would like to contribute, but I have limits. Oh, we certainly understand it, but we're very happy that um, oh, uh, you were able to contribute some of that uh, to our discussion because I think uh, we enjoyed this, and I know our listeners will benefit greatly from it. Well, there are my there's my memoirs, the book of my memoirs, or something, because I also speak about Yugoslavia. And that. Did you and the t the title of your memoirs, Diana, for our listeners? Oh, Circle in the darkness. Thank you so Circle. much. Circle in the dark, and it, it's a clarity, clarity press, circle in the darkness, and that's my memoirs, and I also speak there somewhat about Yugoslavia, and that's my most recent, I would say my last book, the last, the last one I had the energy to do, right? Well, thank you very much, and thank you once again to our listeners for joining us for another episode of the DD Geopolitics podcast. Until next time.